you want to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 today. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is kind of a, where we're going to be starting off today. It's another passage where Paul is describing his ministry. If you remember in this whole series of shepherds and wolves, as we've looked at what it is to be a trustworthy shepherd, and then started to identify some of the wolves that I see present in current society, just to kind of make us aware of their presence, because we're instructed to be watch out for the wolves that, that would seek to destroy us. Paul, we used a, a passage in Acts chapter 20 where Paul is describing his own ministry and starts to talk about the wolves. Well, this is another passage where Paul, again, is describing the ministry that he did and how he did it as an example of being a trustworthy shepherd. But he also goes on to talk about the wolves again and those who are in danger of us. So 1 Corinthians, and just to remind you, this is our, our marching orders right now. Let me back up. To beware of the false prophets. And so, we, so I've been just trying to make us understand what some of the false prophets are out there. Some of those, what we're calling wolves. Now, there's wolves in sheep clothes. And we talked about the lone wolf, those who would seek to break away and kind of do their own thing. And I remind you again that those who are alone are in danger. But if they stay alone long enough, they can also become dangerous to other people. We spent some time talking about the silent wolf and at least three different things that are often left omitted from the biblical teaching when the whole counsel of God, that people are silent about repentance, that people are often silent about suffering, and they're often silent about sacrifice. And so today we're going to look at a different wolf as I introduced to you, the hybrid wolf, this mix between the Gospels. And so we find some of this going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting with verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thought cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things." So Paul's talking about what he's been doing. He's warning the people about their, their, their willingness to accept a, a different gospel, a different Jesus, a different spirit. That there's some kind of warning going out there that, that these false gospels are coming up. And so what I want to do first, and before, as we talk about the hybrid wolf, this, this, this mix, and there's a whole pack of them we're going to talk about today, a whole pack of wolves that we're going to talk about, where the, the truth of the gospel is mixed with some error and lead people astray. I first want to just take a moment and walk through this passage a little bit. Uh, the first thing we see, oh, I got control, it's the desire of a trustworthy shepherd. 
Kind of going back to our shepherd idea. Paul says, look, here's what I've wanted to do. I've wanted to present you, talking to the church, I wanted to present you as a, a pure bride, a pure virgin for Christ. That the, the, the trustworthy shepherd is trying to prepare people for a right relationship with God. And so the message that he's doing, here's what I want to do. I want to bring you to Christ as pure and ready as you can be, that that this marriage between you and him should be a pure thing, a a loving, committed relationship. And so he first just kind of is telling them, this is what I've been trying to do is bring you to Christ, bring you to God in in a right relationship. And that should always be the trustworthy shepherd's motivation. The, the second part of this passage is we see a deep, the danger of sheep apathy. He says, he goes, when you see this different Jesus and this different spirit and this different gospel, you put up with it. <laughs> you act like you don't care. You, you, you just let it hang around and you're, you're too easily influenced by it. You, you don't seem to be really upset by it. Uh, it's, he said, you know, you, you put up with it readily enough. You just kind of don't seem like you're upset by something strange being introduced to you. You entertain things that we shouldn't. We listen to things that we shouldn't. And we, we don't seem to put forth the effort to listen well, as, as I've been trying to talk to ourselves, that, that we have to pay a lot of attention to what's being said out there in church circles as well as what's not being said in church circles. You have to pay a lot of attention. You can't just like, oh, well, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter what people really say in the pulpit. No, it really matters. It matters a lot, and we need to pay very close attention to that. We can't be apathetic because that leads us into a dangerous situation when we just don't listen to the things that are being proclaimed around us. And they're being proclaimed to people. You, you have family. You have friends in, in places. And, and I would say you have family. You have friends. You have colleagues in this community who are hearing false teachings. And you have to care about that. You got to care about that enough to maybe say something to them. Or you can just like, oh, well, you know, they're making their choice. They'll hear what they want to hear. It's all going to come out in the wash. That's apathy. That's not caring about the true gospel. And it's really that that's fired me up to lead, to lead or, or, or preach this series. It just burns on my heart. And finally, he talks about the deceptions of the wolves. You don't have these passages. If you have your Bible, we don't have them on the board. You can skip down. In verse 7 through uh, 11, he describes how he's worked. But if he picks back up with his idea of these people, these people who've, these super apostles that he calls them. He goes in verse 12, he says, And what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And their deeds will correspond, their end will correspond to their deeds. And so the deception of the wolves is, is again displayed by Paul to the church saying, look out for these people. They look like something they're not. 
They look like super apostles. They look like righteous men. They're just doing what their daddy the liar does. They're disguising themselves. They're hiding themselves. And so, so three deceptions that, that he kind of mentions is first, a superior presence. A superior presence. He's saying, he, he refers to him. he says, I don't think I'm less than these quote unquote super apostles. That these people who are preaching these false gospels, they, they present themselves as superior in every way. They, they have this air about them of confidence, this air of, of like, man, I got it together. They're, they're super apostles, and they think they, they speak better. Paul says, I, don't, I may not even be skilled at speaking like they are. This is what I would call our Christian cult of personality. Those people that we look at, man, he can really deliver a sermon. It just gives me goosebumps when I hear them talk. I'll, I'll just say this, better is not always better, right? Just, just because somebody can do a good job and they look superior, they claim to be superior, they act superior, it could be what he's saying. This is all a disguise for who they are. And so we can't get caught up in that personality, can't get caught up. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, the hardest part of this sermon series has been my sermon prep. I spent two hours the other day watching videos of people that I believe are teaching wrong things. That takes a hit on you after a while. I was about to hit myself a few times. And they get up there, and it amazes me. They, they get their crowds, this, this presence just gets their crowds just enamored with them. And they'll just sit up there and go, well, I just think, oh, hallelujah. And people start, I mean, he just, I'm like, he just said, what? He did, they can say anything, I, I tell you. And then people just go off and at the least little comment, he's just got the crowd in the palm of his hands. They're enamored with that superior presence, the, their, their personality and their charisma and, and all that. And these, they're super preachers, right? And we got to realize that better is just not better. One of the other disguises or deceptions that these pastors use is superficial piety verse 13 says for such men are false prophets deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of christ and no wonder even satan disguises himself as an angel light so it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness that their piety their religiousness their the all that they proclaim that they do is all superficial it's there for show it's for there for sure. And they'll, and they'll get up and, and they, they fill the airs with stories of the things that they've done. They fill the time with, oh, when I led this person to Christ and when I led that person to Christ and when I accomplished this and when I healed that person and when I did this and when I did that and when I preached to this group many people and when I had 5,000 people at this sermon and I had this many people get saved, they just all about putting up this front about how great they are, how wonderful they are, how blessed they are. How, how God's assuring us of their validity. And it's all really just a mask you've got to learn to see through. And I couldn't help myself but be a preacher and stick with my alliteration. So they have superior presence, superficial piety, and a spurious gospel. In case you're like me, who had to use a thesaurus and look up that word just so I could find an S to keep it going spurious means not genuine uh, not authentic not true it's a claim it's a, it's pretended 
It's not a proper source. It's a counterfeit. And so their message that these gospel, the, the gospels that these men give out is, is, is not genuine. Really what I would say to you, it, it says if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, well, how many of them are there? One. If they come and proclaim a different spirit, well, how many of different spirits are there? Well, there's only one that you're supposed to have. We're united by one spirit. The Bible tells us that. If you get a different gospel, a different kind of good news than the one you've accepted, well, there's only one true gospel, and it needs to be a pure gospel. But what I think, I think what these people do is they actually do what we're talking about. They make hybrids. A friend of mine at the League of Pastors shared this, this quote with us the other week. And we readily borrow and steal from one another within that group. He said, you know, the closest thing to the real thing will deceive the most people. The closest thing to the real thing is what we really need to watch out for. You know, somebody comes running up in here raving about how Jesus never existed. He never died on a cross. He never was resurrected from the dead. He's a fake guy that was made up in somebody's mind. I'm not too worried about most of us falling for that. That's not close enough to the real thing to get many of us. But there's a lot of things out there that are getting closer and closer to the real thing. And I see them deceiving more people. And that's really what I want to spend the bulk of my time on today is, is these different Gospels, these, these hybrid Gospels, really. They're, they're a mix of truth and falsehood. And then they're mixed well enough that you have to pay really close attention at unraveling what's truth and what's false because you can be just led astray by that. There's enough of wrongness in there that it is dangerous. So five hybrid gospels for you to be on the lookout for. Number one, the narcissistic gospel. Now that's a big fancy word. Now put it up there just so you can remember it. This is what I see on the rise more than any of the other ones right now. This is the one I'm the most concerned about. This is the one that's growing in popularity in our, in our world the most. And one in, in which I think is particularly dangerous in our area. Let me explain to you what it is. You've got to understand some terms before, you, before I give you the definition. First, I want to give you a, a big fancy seminary word called exegesis. All right, Exegesis. It's, the, it's an interpretive process, a biblical interpretive process, where we study the Scripture in order to extract, that is, take out of the Bible, the principles, lessons, commands, and revelations of God in order to apply them to life. All right? exegesis is what you want you want somebody opening the scriptures saying here's what god taught us let's take that out <laughs> let's take the principles let's take the commands let's take the teaching that god put in the bible let's take it out and then put it in our lives all right that's exegesis that's what you want that's a good thing in the recent days i've heard this term narcissus uh introduced to the world. And I think it's a good word. It's an interpretive process, biblical interpretive process, where people read themselves into the scriptures by substituting themselves into the place of the characters of the biblical narrative and then allegorizing the stories. I'm going to give you an example in a minute. But it's, it's where we read into the Bible and like, oh, I'm King David. 
oh, I'm Lazarus in the tomb. We read ourselves into those things. We read our lives into the scriptures, and then we change the meaning of it all because it ends up being about us. That's my definition of the narcissistic gospel, the practice of making the Bible all about us instead of about God. The Bible is about God. We learn about us, but it is God's story. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 says, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self. And then after that goes lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. That whole long list of horrible things starts off with the lover of self. And people have fallen so in love with themselves, and people know people love themselves, that they keep putting the Bible all about them. They read themselves into the Scripture. You may have remembered that I, I quoted a little... A little pledge that a a popular church says every Sunday morning. It starts off, this is my Bible. I'd like to just take issue with that statement. (laughs) It's not your Bible. It's not my Bible. Oh, the copy you have might belong to you, but the Bible is God's. It's God's story. It's God's revelation of himself. It's not God revealing you to the world. It's God revealing himself to the world. It's God's Bible. And it's not and I'm not the main character in it. He is. And so when it goes on to say this is my Bible, I am what it says I am, we forget to tell people, yeah, the Bible says you're wicked, deceitful and bound for hell. That's what the Bible says you are. And it goes on to say, and then I can do what it says I can do, which the Bible says you can't do anything without God. Without him, it's impossible to do anything because he's the vine, you're the branches. Without me, you can't do anything. And anything you do do, anything you can accomplish is worthless rags. That's what the Bible says, who we are and what we can do. Because the Bible is all about God and who he is and what he can do. So anyway, we've turned it on its head. And this narcissistic gospel makes people the center of the Bible instead of God and Jesus Christ, the center of the Bible. So there is some truth mixed here. What is the truth? The Bible does inform us about people. It tells us about our origins, tells us about our problem, which is sin that separates us from God. It tells us about our possible ends, heaven and hell. It also tells us of many of God's desires and promises for us and his commands and his expectations for us. So the Bible is, we are part of that story because God wanted us to be part of that story. But the falsehood is this. The Bible is, as I said, God's story. It's the revelation of himself. He's the main character. And many of the narratives are more about him than the actual characters of the story themselves. When we read the book of Esther, it's all about God. When we read what happens with David and Goliath, it's not about David. It's about the God behind David. (laughs) It's his story. David's just the character on the front page that day, but the background 
is God. It's his plan and his story and how he uses people that amazes us. It's not what David accomplished. It's not about David. And you, won't, you don't want to be David. <laughs> Read yourself into that. I'll give you a quick example. One of the sermons I listened to was telling the story of Lazarus. All right. You remember the story of Lazarus? He dies. Somebody sends, you know, word to Jesus. His friend's sick. Jesus hangs out for a few days, shows up after Lazarus is dead, raises him out of the thing. One of the most important lines in there is Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The whole story of Lazarus is to teach us that Jesus is the life. He is the resurrection, that those who have faith in him, who believe who he is, can expect to walk out of their graves one day. That's the story. But when you put it, when we read ourselves into it, it became this idea that we all have a Lazarus in our lives. And what we need to do is is call our Lazarus out of the tomb. It, it actually got allegorized to the place that, that the tomb that Lazarus in stood for Mary's little heart. And, and that we all hide things in our heart that are stinking and, and, and need to be, we bury them away in our hearts. And we got to open up our hearts to Jesus so he can call out our Lazarus from inside our hearts. And he went on to say, come out, disappointment. Call out your disappointment. Call out your joy. Resurrect the joy in your life. Resurrect the peace in your life. Resurrect your dreams. If you have a dream that's died, call that Lazarus out of the grave. Call out if you have an expectation that's not been met, or if you have hope that's not been met, or if you have a relationship that's fallen on hard times that's not there, call those Lazarus out of the grave. That's not what it's about. It's about Jesus raising a dead guy. That's what it's about. And those of us who have faith in Jesus can have the same hope of being called out of our grave one day. But we've read, we've read people into the story so much that we, we twist this meaning and people love it. I, I read the comments. I, I watched the sermon. I read the comments. People are just falling over themselves about the truth that this is bringing to their lives. And they cried and they were wept and they were moved. This is one of the responses. This is the word that I needed. I've had a horrible time this year in terms of my academics. And it's just made me doubt whether I was going to be able to fulfill this dream that God has placed in me. I think after this sermon, I've realized that this dream, my Lazarus, has died, uh, had died, and today it has just come back to life. I don't know how, I don't know what God, uh, that the God that I serve, what he will do and he needs for me when, when he needs to do it. This happens so that his glory will be revealed. I want to trust in God fully. I pray, uh, I pray God guys, guys and me. We don't know how to trust but we will do what he promised see myself as in the end that this dream is fulfilled worshiping God again God will be done in your life that his takeaway from the story of Lazarus is that he was going to get good grades another person my life took a took a turn I didn't see coming or why God allowed it to happen I found myself in a lot of debt and I don't even know how I can get out. But after watching this sermon, I've realized that God has been standing there on the side waiting for me to open the stone of the tomb. Help me pray for my Lazarus to get raised from its tomb. 
It's not about debt. There's teachings in the Bible about debt, but the story of Lazarus is not about getting out of debt, not calling your debt out of the tomb. Another one responded about their career. Their career had tanked, and now they had hope that God was going to call their career out of the tomb. This is the narcissistic gospel. This is people-focused, not teaching the Bible for what it means. And people are gobbling it up. Why? Because they're lovers of selves. And this type of gospel makes it all about them. And they like it being all about them. Another gospel. I'll power through some of these because I've said enough about the prosperity gospel at times. Very prominent in our world again. The definition that I use for the prosperity gospel, the God, that God's promise of an abundant life, quote unquote, means to never have lack, never have want, never have trouble of any kind, never have financial trouble, medical trouble, legal trouble, or any other kind of trouble. That if you get with God, you just won the lottery. Congratulations. Life is going to be good. Now, there's some truth to the prosperity gospel, and it's based on this truth. God does promise to meet our needs. God does want us to experience the best life, except for the best life is doing life God's way, not your way. He does want that for us. He gives us commands so that we'll get the most out of life. God does promise us heaven. The falseness behind it, heaven ain't here. (laughs) This isn't going to be heaven. Needs and wants are different. (laughs) God will give us what we need, not everything we want. And material things are not God's focus. God himself, Jesus himself said, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust won't destroy them. Don't worry about material things. What good does it gain a man to to gain the whole world and lose his soul? God's focus is on eternity and not on this world, not on our material blessings. He, and, they, and just the reading of the soils, it was material blessings, pleasure of this life that distracted some, uh, the, the thorny soil from being productive. The truth of the matter is we, we hear a lot of this. And, and I just wonder how many people ever consider this. If that was true, all of the disciples, all the apostles missed it. Every one of them died a martyr's death except for John. They were all in legal trouble. They were all in financial trouble. They had people who hated their guts. I mean, literally killed them because of it. The gospel wasn't too prosperous for the apostles. But remove yourself 2,000 years and all of a sudden it's about wealth and naming it and claiming it. Something got mixed somewhere over the centuries. The fact of the matter is the narcissistic gospel and the prosperity gospel are twin sisters from the same mother. And that's the mother of self-worship. Now they're, 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 they're just so closely relinked that they're, they're really almost twins of one another. And it's all about self-love and self-worship. The worst kind of idolatry in our society. Another gospel that's prominent that you'll hear more is the universal gospel. Definition. That all religions are acceptable to God as a means of salvation. That it doesn't matter what you believe, just believe something. And, and, and believe it with all your heart. 
That's how it goes. The great spiritual advisor of America, who we all love and adore, Oprah Winfrey, has said there has to be more than one way to God. She was doing an interview with another very prominent super preacher of our day and asked this pastor, is there one way to the one God? And the pastor rightly answered, I believe Jesus is the way to God. But then he followed up, but I think there might be more than one way to get to Jesus. And he went on to say, I don't know how Jesus will present himself to people. What he's inferring is that Jesus might come in the disguise of Muhammad. Or Jesus might come in the disguise of Buddha. Or Jesus might come in the disguise of Confucius. Or Jesus might present himself in any number of ways to people, but it's still Jesus behind the mask that he's wearing. That's working hard to get to a universal gospel. Because I think Jesus is going to present himself as Jesus. He says, the Bible says, there's no other way except through Jesus. There's no other name except for Jesus. I heard a prominent evangelical preacher one time say, people are going to be saved from all over the world. They may not know the name of Jesus, but they're going to be saved. Well, the Bible says there's no other name except for Jesus. So if he's presenting himself as somebody else, sooner or later he's got to take the mask off and say, ha ha, fooled you, it wasn't Muhammad, it was me. Jesus all the time. They've got to know the name Christ. This is what we believe. This is an exclusive gospel. It's not a universal gospel. And this is what the world hates us for, our exclusivity. But you've got to make a determination because Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Either he's telling the truth or he's lying. Either he's the only way or he's no way at all. He, he, paints, he paints us in a corner of faith with that statement. And we either have to come out of that corner saying, Jesus is the only way to the Father or he can't be trusted at all because there's other ways. That's the universal gospel. People will talk about the truth of it. What's, what's true about the universal gospel? That salvation is offered to everyone. It's universally available. It's universally there. That the Bible tells us, for God so loved the world that Christ came, right? So that's everybody. It's universally available. He died for all people if they would have put their faith in him. What's false? The, the truth of the matter, there is the, the falsehood is that there's, one, there's more than one way to God. That's false. That it doesn't, here's what people will say, it doesn't matter what you believe, just believe, just do your best, just believe it with all your heart. I would submit that there are people who will say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you sincerely believe what you believe. The problem of that is you can sincerely believe something and be sincerely wrong. I've told this example, I love this example. Uh, Shelly had a friend she met in seminary. They were talking one day and talking about their favorite color or something. And the girl goes, well, my favorite color is purple. And Shelly goes, what? She said, yeah, I, I love purple. And she goes, what are you saying? Purple. She goes, can you spell that? Yeah, P-U-R-M-P-L-E, purple. She goes, do you mean purple? She goes, yeah, purple. <laughs> no, purple. 
the little girl was 20-some years old and had spelled purple with an M in it in her entire life. She sincerely believed that purple was purple with an M in it. You know what? She was sincerely wrong. And that's from somebody who can't spell. And so just because you believe something, because you've believed it all your life, because you've practiced it. She had written purple every time she had written the word, she'd put an M in it her entire life. And sometimes you've got to say, let me show you a dictionary. <laughs> let me show you the gospel in black and white. One other false gospel that's very prevalent today and is on the rise is the culture gospel. Definition for the culture gospel holds that biblical interpretation must be molded to fit culture, current culture, of the times to be relevant and current with opinions of society and does not transcend, that the principles of the Bible do not transcend time or with eternal principles described, decided by a sovereign deity. What it says is that culture determines what the Bible says. That, 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 that the culture must mimic the day in which we now read it. And, if it and, and that culture needs to drive our interpretation more than the belief and an absolute truth drive our interpretation. And you'll see this is where much of mainline thinking moves towards being more understanding of what the Bible says today. And you've got all kinds of versions of the Bible out there that's trying to react to cultures and the day in which we live. And the fifth one, uh, the truth of, of the culture is we do. We must be culturally sensitive. We must know what's going on in culture, and we must be relevant to our times. We must address the issues in our times, while at the same time, we shouldn't let culture change biblical absolutes. That's the falsehood. That's, that's where we go wrong. We need to be culturally sensitive. We need to know what's going on in culture. We need to address culture with biblical absolutes and not the other way around. And maybe the closest thing to the real thing. Religious gospel. The belief that religious practice, involvement, duty, or knowledge are sufficient for securing someone's eternal blessings. Can't tell you the number of times I heard, well, they know. They know what they need to know. They got the knowledge. You should hear them quote scripture. You should hear it. like, yeah, but when's the last time they've actually produced or been to church or followed God or, or shared their faith or any of the other things that we would call just kind of traditional starting of being a disciple? That knowledge is not enough. Activity is not enough. That these things aren't sufficient for God's eternal blessing on ourselves. It goes by some other names, maybe you might better than religious gospel, maybe the behavior gospel, you know, we just try to make people behave themselves, or the be good gospel, you know, that the good news, just be good and, and God will take care of things, you know, do your best. The truth behind that, the gospel will change what we do. What we, and we can and should expect good works, fruit, and obedience. Those are true that, that when we accept the gospel, it should show itself in how we live. But the falsehood is that religious activity and good behavior 
display a true relationship with God. That's false. Religious activity and good behavior don't necessarily describe or or explain or, or evidence of a good relationship with God. That you can do religious things. You can be, quote, unquote, a good person and never know Jesus at all. Never understand grace. Never commit your life to him. And I have biblical proof. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not uh, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That just doing, just behaving like a Christian won't make you a Christian. Committing your life to Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Realizing the truth of the gospel, that the story is about him. And what it tells us that we are, that we're sinners in need of a savior. And we can't do that without him. He's the one who saves us. And we can't bear fruit. And anything we do to try to save ourselves is going to fall short. That we must hold on to a real gospel that depends on the grace of God. Something we don't deserve, we don't earn. And that it'll change our lives. We can't mix it with culture. We can't mix it with making me great. We can't mix it with my prosperity. We can't mix it with other religions. But this is an exclusive message from God to us. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. And it needs to be mixed with nothing else. And if we're not careful, we can be duped by hybrid gospels out there. I pray today that we will fight for the true gospel. That we won't entertain gospels that are false. And we will help people see the truth of the real gospel of Jesus Christ.